and welcome back to the Neuroaffirming Parent Podcast. I'm your host, the Neuroaffirming Parent, and today I want to welcome you and our special guest to this episode because I think it's going to be so insightful. We have Corey Brisky joining us. She is a mom of two wonderful children, one of which is neurodivergent, medically complex, and disabled. Corey is excited to have found her passions and to share them with our listeners. She holds a master's degree in public health with a focus on community health and a bachelor's degree with a major in psychology and minor in business administration. Now, Corey loves to write. She loves to advocate for children with disabilities and speak her own truth. In fact, she has written a memoir called What Village, a memoir on overcoming ableism and reclaiming motherhood. She is currently in the early publication process, so please follow her on Instagram at Corey Brisky and cheer her on, give her some support, or go to her website at www.coreybrisky.com and follow her, subscribe for more updates. But please join me in welcoming our guest. Welcome, Corey. Hi, thank you so much, Jan. I appreciate you having me on and for that really nice introduction. You are so welcome. You know, it's funny because that's sometimes my favorite part. And I love to surprise people because it feels almost like I'm your cheerleader. Like I get to like pull out the best parts of your bio and like, let me share you to the world. <laughs> yeah, it feels good. Thank you. And so I, you know what? I love that we connected on Instagram and that you reached out on my guest form but can we just talk about the, we did not plan our posts, but me and you's posts are kind of similar. And like, I smashed that like button, especially your recent post about ableism, where you said convincing parents of disabled children that if they work hard enough, they can get them to function like a typical child, like mind blown. Tell me about that post. Yeah. Um, so I, I think I just think about my own personal experience and my path. And it it really, um, it started when my son was born premature and just didn't meet all of his developmental milestones. And, and so it was this constant measuring of what he should be doing and what he was doing. And there was never a conversation. There was a, at a, a point at which he was diagnosed with global developmental delay. And that doesn't mean a whole lot. It, it just means right. we don't know why your child is is behind. But but it also is indicative in a lot of ways of, of your child is going to develop differently. And so they're going to be on a different trajectory. We just don't know what that trajectory is going to look like. And so instead of just um, having a conversation about, hey, like this is going to look different and that's okay. Um, it was all about catching him up to that typical trajectory that we were um, comparing him against. And so there was so much pressure to do more therapies and more mm. and figure it out more and more and more that at, at no point did anybody just say, hey, just enjoy your child. Like it, it was yeah. all about, it was all just enjoy your child, teach your child the, the same things you might teach neurotypical children, right? Um, enjoy life, validate their feelings, be kind and compassionate. Remember they're human. Yeah. Exactly. And so what it really was all about was, is he going to catch up? How can we get him to catch up? And what can I do as a parent 
right? This pressure, what can I do as a parent to get him where he needed to be? And in reality, he needed to be where he was Mm -hmm. (laughs) and he didn't need the pressure from his mother to do something he wasn't developmentally ready to do yet. And so that's where that came from. And you put that so beautifully. And I wish, I want to expand on that because I feel that too. And I'm interested to know what prompted you to suspect that he was delayed with milestones what was it your own questioning was it like a baby app because that's for me like that's apps were huge when my kids were young or was it just going to the pediatrician um so he was born premature and it really wasn't a huge deal to be born two months premature in in that world it wasn't a micro preemie he did really well in the hospital um and so uh, he just needed to learn to feed, control his temperature, and um, there was one other one, but but basically learn how to be a baby. <laughs> and so once he did all those things, he spent six weeks in the special infant care unit. They they follow the preemies way more closely than they follow um, a, a fully developed newborn. So we mm. were going in weekly, then bi-weekly, then monthly. And so his first year had a lot of doctor's appointments just to follow him as a preemie. And so they knew really quickly yeah. that he was milestones. And so by, by six months, um, all the, at six months, they were like, oh, he needs physical therapy. He had protocol. So that's when like, there was like kind of a snowball of like, we need this therapy and that therapy needs an eye referral. But by a year, it was very clear that he wasn't meeting his any of his milestones, really. I mean, he wasn't rolling over. He wasn't sitting up. So it wasn't like a small discrepancy. It was a huge discrepancy in what, like his, what his sister looked like at one versus what he looked like at one. And so. Um, and was he your he, second born? He was, yes. So um, it was easy to see the difference, essentially. No, I feel that totally because, and I would even say like what you're talking about, I remember like to this day, the stress, as soon as I got pregnant, it was the importance of the mom to learn everything. Like what do people tell you? Get all the baby books, get all the developmental stuff, take the classes at the hospital. Um, I wish the pediatrician honestly offered classes too. Um, and we knew from our family history that my husband was born premature, but I was like a late baby. I did not want to get out. (laughs) So it was such like a hang up, but unless you have that kind of, it's not even documented really with me and my husband, even though we're nineties babies, but you kind of have to rely on that word of mouth history. And I feel like it's such a loss because you're thrown that paperwork as a new mom. Like you have to write your family history down, write everything, And I empathize with you so much because I remember seeing moms, like we were in the hospital, it was like flu season. So we were like kind of trying to be in and out, but those moms, like those, even those parents, like it broke my heart when they were like, Hey, we're coming to visit our baby that it's a preemie. It would break my heart that I have to leave my tiny little baby, even though I was healthy and I could go home, but my baby couldn't come home with me. And I didn't feel prepared, even though my child was like past 40 weeks, I didn't feel prepared to take care of that baby coming home. (laughs) So tell me what, what kind of differences did you notice as a mom from your firstborn to your second? Um, you know, 
there were there were clear differences. I mean, I almost couldn't even compare. Um, but I will say it was so hard to think. It was so hard to reflect. I was so tired. You know, you're just so exhausted trying to survive, trying to do the day-to-day, trying to manage that. There wasn't as much reflection as you would think. I wasn't obsessively comparing the two Mm. to each other. I was just trying to get to the doctor's appointment, get to the therapy appointments, get some fun in for my daughter. Um, My son cried a lot first 10 months. So just getting him to nap was a marathon session of did they ever say call it? Cause I feel like that kind of gone away with our parenting generation. Yeah. It was a medical issue that we hadn't been able to solve yet. Um, he had reflux and we didn't know until mm. he was here. And so, um, so I had always thought, well, once we can get this under control, that under control, he would catch up. Right. Yeah. He would, he would um, it would all be okay. It would, it would be better. Um, and so I think I like, to kind of shine a point that you made, which is like, we don't have a manual, right? But it is all up to the mother, right? Because for the most part, right? Or the caregiver, I'll say, but, um, you know, it is, falls on, the responsibility falls on one person. Yes. And there's a lot of weight and a lot of pressure. And especially if you have multiple kids, it's like, there is no um, manual for how to balance and juggle that all. I mean, even just with two, two three multiple typical kids, we all know as mothers, it is so difficult and we don't have enough time and energy for everything we need to do in the day. And so to kind of pile that on with a child, a disabled child that had a lot of needs, just even functioning your, like what you might do, like think about cooking or cleaning or um, errands, that stuff did not happen. <laughs> and yeah. Day. And I, if I could comment too on that, I feel like a lot of people write off, you know, the anxiety of motherhood as like, oh, well, you know, you're just putting extra pressure on yourself. But I don't think people realize that mothers fear defects, CPS being called, or what if the doctor noticed something and I didn't notice it first? Am I going to get judged for ignoring something? Should I have done something sooner? Uh, you know what I mean? Like, I feel like you're constantly for sure in problem solving mode. Like, what could I do better? What could I do differently? What can I do to fix this? <laughs> yeah. And I feel like a lot of people are easily saying like, well, don't blame yourself or don't go to self-blame. But I think it's hard to understand the complexity of, no, you have people saying side comments of, well, you know, you could have took these vitamins or, oh, you could have done this and you internalize that. And you're like, so I did this. I'm, I'm the problem. What did I do? And then you kind of overcompensate unknowingly. And I know exactly what you mean. Cause even, cause we don't have a village, me and my husband. So when my daughter was born, we were kind of okay, you know, handling it on our own. And thankfully, like I had a short-term disability and we had FMLA, which in America, these obviously are unique situations because everybody else has universal healthcare, Um, but we don't have maternal leave. And the irony is my son was born. My husband got paternal leave for a week. I never saw a dime of maternity leave, but my husband got paternal leave which did help but 
it's different when you are taking care of a child and you already have those expectations of what should I be doing to help her? And then you're like, wait, I have this newborn that needs me entirely. How do you balance that? And we even took a sibling class in the hospital, which funnily enough, like my daughter got dysregulated and we had to leave early, but it didn't really explain how to juggle that. But please tell me you had more support than I did. (laughs) I want to say that, but um, I didn't feel supported um, as far as the typical day to day. You know, it's I was the first of my friends and family to have kids, and it it was you know not something I kind of navigated with anybody. I was. I wish I met you sooner. We could have texted at least. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, For sure. And I did have mom friends, you know, that also had kids. And so I felt like I did have that piece where I was able to go and hang out and chat at the time, but you know, it it was different. They had a very different life when the play date was over than what, you know, so. Well, and tell me about your, um, like if you have a medical like support group or a pediatrician, because I had a friend with a pediatrician and she could literally text them any hour on the hour or question and they'd respond where my pediatrician, like even when we got there, it was like a wait. And then once we got back, it was like, mostly we saw the nurse, the pediatrician was like, hi, bye. And that was it. <laughs> I'm, I mean, if I had a question for a physician, I could send it through the messaging system. Um, and they would be responsive. It, it wasn't an emotional support. It was just like a very clinical environment where you say, okay, I think my child is exhibiting these things. Could it be this, you know, and they might brainstorm a little bit. And, you know, it could be that I didn't utilize them as much as I could have, but it also was, wasn't, you know, something that was on the table that fell on the table either. And certainly as things progressed, there were times when I was became more desperate and did reach out more, um, like more persistently and said, I need help. And that is when one of his, my son's neurodevelopmental um, neurologists uh, really sat with me and said, okay, what can we do to help? And so there, there was some support, you know, that happened when I got really desperate. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, I do have another question because I feel like there's such a gap between pregnancy, birth, and then education. And my question is because I never got the ability of this experience, but did anybody explain to you the child find law? Um, no, but I would like you to explain it to me right now. (laughs) Yeah. So child find, I didn't know until after IEP meetings, but it's section 300.111 if anybody's interested for idea and I'll put it in the show notes but it says that the state must have in effect policies and procedures to ensure that all children with disabilities residing in the state regardless of the severity of their disability who are in need of special education and related services are identified located and evaluated And a practical method should be developed and implemented to determine these children, which you'd think if the hospital collects data or the pediatrician that we'd be able to find that. And also children who are suspected of having a disability and are in need of special special education, even if they're advancing grade to grade, grade to grade, 
um, are included. Um, but also, um, where does it say? The one that got me the most was the ages. So it applies to children aged um, from birth um, to even before pre-K. And then usually the, like when you talk about developmental delays, they kind of want to point it out between the ages of three to nine or a subset in between that late range. But really the primary ages are three to five. So my real question is just like, did anybody help you navigate that information like did anybody say like hey he might need special services or at any point kind of help you with because that's paperwork right yeah so so it's we would go to our appointments starting you know at six months was when we'd get the referrals the referrals are sent out or it's my job to call mm. that's it you get your list and you come home with a to-do list and that's on you to do it at some point, you get a case manager that helps you um, pick therapists or they do in-home therapy. Um, so my son was certainly in the system getting therapies from basically from birth because, um, you know, I remember a physical therapist coming in and working on his feet from the moment he was born because he was born with club feet. Um, and so Which my question be that was, why can't we get physical therapists for maternal care <laughs> right well, right and so it was like this hyper focus on my child from from day one it wasn't the hyper focus on my child and how beautiful he was and how you know enjoy motherhood it was oh like he needs some fixing let's let's fix him let's do this and I think what you had said earlier about internalizing these messages what do you internalize from day one is that you are responsible for your child. You internalize you're responsible to fix your child in whatever way it might be. And then what happens to your child, they internalize yes. that, they, that whatever they are doing is not enough. And I think that was, um, that took a long time for me to understand that like the pressures were coming down on me. I was internalizing them. And of course that it, they were coming out in the way I, I parented my child because it was all about, um, fixing his feet or torticollis or meeting milestones or whatever it might be, but it was never ending. And honestly, most of the stuff I was trying to get my son to do by doing hand over hand and, and all these other therapeutic techniques that I was shown and told to keep doing were first of all, not neurodiversity affirming. And second mm. of all, were showing my son that no matter what he did, it wasn't enough. He was learning how to be helpless. And so that was like really heartbreaking to kind of reflect and realize that that had happened over the years. And if I just like comment, because I, for my dyslexic thinking, I'm thinking like, in what other world does this happen? Because let's say you have a special ed student. The teacher usually either gets some sort of professional development or training before that release of responsibility goes to them. And, or even like, you know, in any medical field, I want to say like in almost every other field, because even in my personal training, like we had to learn about contraindications. We had to learn about all these things before we took on any client. It wasn't assuming that your client was going to be a full able-bodied normal person. It was saying, Hey, you need to be prepared to handle anybody that steps into this gym at any time. Mm -hmm. And for me as a parent, I feel 
like there's such a gap in knowledge and I feel like it shouldn't be a private company. It should be included in our government systems where we should have like, somebody can record a webinar easily and provide this information. And then we should also have access to support groups, um, especially when you're talking about, you know, like not everybody's gonna know about neurodiversity, but everybody can learn. My question would be, which is my favorite question to ask guests, but what started your journey to neurodiversity? You, what was the turning point for you where you were like, hey, these therapies, I'm getting a different feeling and I need to do some research? Yeah. So honestly, I, I think, you know, it's easy for a lot of people who have also been kind of trained to be people pleasers to kind of push away that gut feeling. And so I spent a lot of time like observing therapies and feeling like not great about them or irritated or like, you know, they weren't productive and not really understanding why I didn't like them. Um, although, you know, looking back, it was very clear. And so it took me a <laughs> time to see, to realize like I needed to find better therapists that the therapy that my son was experiencing ultimately wasn't good. And so um, it wasn't until my son was, five and diagnosed as autistic that um, I started looking more into the neurodiversity movement and all that it entails. And really it was when they um, recommended ABA and, and I experienced and we went and tried it and I knew that it was derisive. And I was like, well, you know, I just have to see for myself um, that we had in-home ABA. And, and that's when I was simultaneously looking into the neurodiversity movement and listening to autistics and hearing how, you know, they say it was traumatizing, right? But it's like- mm. And what age was your son when they said a in-home ABA? Because that's a new one. I haven't heard that. Oh yeah, they have in-home. They have in-clinic, they have in-home um, and they recommend, you know, 30, 40 hours a week. Um, and how old was he? He was five. And so we had him. Oh my goodness. So the requirement, so they were like, we'll do school, do both. But it was like, that was exhausting for me because putting him in school was, was in sense a respite because I hadn't really gotten much respite um, because it was not that kind of support. Um, And so ABA felt like, well, maybe I could get a handle on some of the behaviors that were um, hard to, to manage at home. Um, And so when we started ABA, um, well, can you tell me how they marketed ABA to you? Like what? Cause I think yeah. that's confusing for people. Yeah. yeah. They market it as, and they're talking to really desperate parents that don't understand their children. Yeah. Cause and they're not like, saying like, Hey, we're going to yeah. harm and torture your kid. Let me no, do that. <laughs> no, absolutely. They want, they, it's just this lack of understanding. They market it as the gold standard of care for autistic children. And they tell you that this is what's going to help your child and your family function to max capacity. And so a lot of these parents are really desperate for that help. They're and even seen as a respite, right? Because it's 20, 30, 40 hours a week where parents don't get that sort of break um, if they have kids that are under school age. And so it's almost like they just take it because they don't have any other options. And it feels like a respite, feels like a break. Well, and also the person that was coming to your home, did they explain like their credentials or their background? Um, 
honestly, like sometimes I didn't ask the right questions or think about the right things. And so I knew this person was going to come in and create goals. And I didn't understand the whole science behind it, even though I asked and I still didn't quite understand the science behind it and how it works. And so I was only able to absorb so much information at once. Um, but I think what really did did it for me was watching them do um, hand over hand for a puzzle that my son just really didn't want to do and i was just begging the 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 and for our listeners if they couldn't see a video what oh, okay. is a way that you'd understand what you would explain hand over hand yeah. to like a friend that you're talking to on the phone so i want to talk about hand over hand a little bit because i think it's important to to distinguish that it's not just an aba tactic it is a technique that is used by so many therapists all across, at least I'm in the US, all across the country. This is what is taught in school, hand over hand. And this is the technique where basically a therapist will take your child's wrist or the top of their hand and guide it and move it to whatever task that we're working on to push a button, to um, uh, scoop with silverware, to do anything that is considered, um, that is a goal or, you know, whatever therapy you're in. And so we would constantly, including myself, I was trained to take my son's hand and push the button, take my son's hand and help him grab the food, take his, my son's hand and change the page on the book. And we did it so much and so often. Um, I, it, I think with, with the idea behind it is that it helps your child learn the movement pattern. But, but honestly, scientifically speaking, it's actually shown that the person facilitating it is learning more than the actual um, person that you're doing it with that needs the therapy. And so it has been scientifically proven not to work, but it is used by, you know, many, many therapists. It's a primary technique for ABA therapists. It is a huge, huge. Um, well, let's talk about that because what are you doing when you touch somebody? You are not asking them for consent. Yes. You are invading their space right. and you're not helping their autonomy. You're almost taking it away. Yeah. And so, so I was taught by therapists to do this. And at some point I had done it so much. And so often I was ignoring my son's attempt at saying no. Mm. He didn't like me touching his hand all the time. He was frustrated, but I had done it so much that like, I didn't even see his communication anymore. And so I think yeah. that's what happens in therapy. So it's too. desensitizing the parent yeah. and the yeah. therapist. And the therapist. And I think that's the thing that's really important to know. We need to re, uh, rework the way we work with our kids so we could actually see their communication. It is It becomes invisible. And I think that's been a big problem because um, you don't even realize what you're doing to this child because you've been doing it for so long and you've been Ooh. trained to see past it. Yes. And I'm so glad I'm not alone because I do feel alone a lot of the time because what I see, and I have to credit my dyslexic thinking is so much overlap. And I made a recent post on this because I did not know the foundational philosophy of behaviorism is materialism and physicalism. And so these are old concepts and what they, it was before neuroscience and it was just kind of purely the basis of physics but it's, they only believed in the physical world. They didn't believe in consciousness. They didn't believe in free will. They, it's really, I mean, that's the basis of a hand over hand. And for me, the problem is how, if you asked a teacher 
hey, we're not doing this, um, you know, teaching thing anymore. You have to individually go to a class and every student, you have to put your hand over and teach them how to write their name. Every teacher would say no, <laughs> right? Absolutely. Yes. Thank you. And that is the problem with the way we treat our disabled children versus the way we treat our typical children. And it seems like common sense, but we stop being so hands-on with our typical children when they develop. There's no reason why we should be so hands-on with our disabled children, um, except for that they're not as good at communicating no. Right. And for me, with my information now of structured literacy, it seems like a no-brainer that we know neuroscience tells us, yes, consciousness is real. Yes, free will is real. And how the brain learns is through seeing it, having it modeled for them. So you see somebody do it, which is lovely, Dr. Anita Archer. I have it even on my wall. I do, we do, you do. And a lot of, if you see it, it's funny because the people that are teachers that support behavior charts in class or support whole language or support balanced literacy, they also support this idea that oh no, kids don't need explicit instruction. They need implicit instruction. They need inquiry-based instruction, which for me, what I know now is a red flag because no, the brain needs explicit instruction because if you don't see it or if we're not inclusive and you don't model it for any child with a disability, so let's say they can't see, maybe they need to feel it, that is explicit you don't do it with the teacher. And that doesn't mean hand over hand. That means the teacher can be on the board writing something. You're at your desk writing something. So you both have autonomy and you write together, which is whole group. And then the teacher gradually releases that responsibility to the student. So then they can feel independent to do it on their own. And for me, I don't understand the disconnect of how you can't apply that to everything because that's how our brain learns any skill. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think there's some level of dissociation in our society when it comes to dealing with disabled children that we, that we say it's okay. It's not okay for anyone else, but it's okay for you. Well, and sadly, I think it goes back to, I know this sounds like conspiracy theory, but constructivism, which was technically based on the Greek philosopher Plato or idealism from the Greeks, which is the idea that, oh, we can have this perfect utopia, but there's these outliers that we have to exclude first. Mm -hmm. And the flip side of that isn't necessarily found in Greek culture because they weren't very inclusive. They were very exclusive. And for me, I'm like, well, why can't you look at that? It fell. Like <laughs> we were supposed to make a better world. Right. And that's why I harp. And I'm, I'm so glad that you love to talk about inclusion too. Um, but tell me how your son's doing now. He's, he's good. You know, so I think once I kind of learned the elements of neurodiversity affirming therapy and said, okay, this is enough. I'm not going to I'm going to respect your boundaries and your consent. And then it didn't just carry from me. I said, your teacher and your therapist mm. and your doctor, everybody is. You became the professional development. Yay. <laughs> I was like, nobody is going to touch you ever. And unless you say it's okay, nobody's going to do it. You know, and of course, like there are, there's reality where it's like, everything's a work in progress. And so I'm always trying to better, um, be better for my son, but I, I do make sure like I put it in his IEP 
There is no hand over hand. I'm constantly checking in with this therapist to make sure they're not using any compli compliance-based tactics. Um, I'm always in touch with his teacher at school um, to, to make sure she's acknowledging that all his behavior is communication and she's really good at brainstorming ways to accommodate him. Um, and so he's happy and oh, that God. is amazing, right? I drop him off to school, he has a smile on his face. I pick him up and he has a smile on his face. And when he's enjoying things, he's learning. And whether it's what we want him to learn, that doesn't matter. He's yes. always learning, growing and developing. And I think that's magical to see once as a parent, I was able to drop my expectations without the help of society, but I did it. And now I get to watch him and treat him like I would my, my typical child and just love him and reclaim my motherhood so I can give him a really amazing childhood. And so that's what I'm, I'm making sure happens at this point. And so. Um, and I'm so glad you said that. Cause I feel like I am so excited for you to publish your memoir because I want to read it and feel vindicated because I love when you say reclaiming motherhood because I feel like even though my journey you know I've posted about it I've talked about it I feel like that's where I'm hopefully at um but <laughs> I don't fear IEP meetings anymore because we don't have the IEP I don't fear going to the school or getting a phone call from the school because we're homeschooled now um but tell me how or what even empowered you to start writing your memoir? Oh gosh, yeah. So um, there was actually, it even started uh, maybe a year before I initially thought, but about a, um, I don't know how old my son was, maybe when he was five, uh, there was like this contest, the library, like a short story contest. And for some reason I was like, it was 1500 words. I was like, you know, what? I'm just going to write it. So I wrote basically this short story, but I found that I could not, I had a lot of trouble keeping it to 1500 words. I was like, gosh, there's so much I want to say, whatever. And I didn't win the contest. I didn't even get a response back. Um, but what happened in that year uh, was, you know, just life and you forget about it. But then at some point I shared it with a couple of people that were like, this is really insightful. Like, I didn't know you went through that. I didn't know, you know, and it's just like, I thought I was telling people, but mm. <laughs> But apparently not. And then um, one summer when I finally had childcare for the first time ever um, last year, so it was a year ago, my son was sick and I, I finally had rest of the summer, was feeling good. I was feeling less stressed. Um, I was just talking to a friend and catching up and she was like, oh, I should write a book. And I just, something just clicked in my mind and I was like, I should write a book. And I, I sat down and I had like 10, 15 minutes and I wrote like, I think it was just a page. It was my, it ended up being my prologue. But after I wrote it, I just felt so empowered. And like, like there was all of a sudden a purpose to all this hurt and pain and difficulty. And even though there was only literally one page written, I knew it was done. Like I knew the book will be written. I couldn't stop myself. It was like a compulsion. Mm -hmm. And Did so it feel like cathartic, like therapeutic. Yeah, I mean, it was cathartic, it was therapeutic, it was helping me reflect on my life and who I was and where I'd been and where I was going and, um, and it put things into focus um, more than I had ever known. And so I, I found out more about myself, I found out more about uh, my family, I found out more about my children and what I'm passionate about. And so 
a year later, I had my first draft and I, I don't know, it was just history, but it was, it was the best thing I'd, I'd ever done. And after that, I was just on a completely different path in life. Yay. And I, do you like handwrite or do you just type? I type and I, I find this is fun to share. This is fun for me to share. When I think of a scene or something that happened, it's almost like I have no vision. Like yes. I'm thinking, and then I'm just typing. And even though I'm like kind of looking at the screen here and there, I'm so in my mind of the moment. I don't have visual image imagery, but I'm thinking the the scene back out that I'm almost not looking and I'm not aware. I guess you become one. Scene. Yeah. And you're just like, yeah. pour out of me. <laughs> yeah. I'm connected to the keyboard, um, but I need the keyboard to, to write, um, which is interesting. Well, can't. I have a question though. So for your Instagram posts and even for your blogs, for your website, do you have a different process or is it similar? Um, my brain is always, always working. Um, and so when it's shorter, I don't get in a flow state. Uh, but if I wake up in the middle of the night, my brain is working on something and then all of a sudden it's all clear. And then I have to write it down real quick. I, yeah. I just put it in my drafts on my phone real quick and then I'll come back to it when I get. Yeah. To you don't want to see my tabs. You don't want to see my yeah. drafts. <laughs> yeah. So it's, and you know, if there's a part that I had to work out, it might be a week or two that I'd have to sleep on it and I'd wake up one day and I'd know everything that I needed to say, or if I was stuck it would be because I'd have to go back and fill in a gap or whatever. So um, I just, I just, I, it's like a wave. Like I've just let it carry me. I didn't force anything. It just came how it came and I let it. So um, it felt really good. Yeah. And you know, I, you know, that takes me back because I feel like, you know, just like you were saying, like you saw a simple contest. Cause my mom, when we were growing up, she, I can't remember if it was like, like a, a break or something, but she saw like a random newspaper clipping and it was like, submit a short story. And she wrote a really good story and submitted it. Um, and she won like a little contest. And it was just like a simple story. Cause she like heard a thump every night and she didn't know what it was. And it turned out it was our dog using our <laughs> chair to scratch the back of them or something, but she drew readers in and she's ADHD. And I'm like, why don't you write more? Like I, I'm trying to like encourage her to write her life story. But why don't we write outside of school? Like there, you see so many book clubs popping up. I'm wondering, like after your book is published, like you should totally start like a writer's workshop for like moms. Cause I feel like not everybody can afford therapy, but everybody can afford their phone and a draft and they can write. <laughs> and there is, there's like, there's a lot out there for writing, for healing. And, and as a therapeutic piece, it has to be done a certain way, but it, it certainly is important. And I think it's definitely interesting that you said, you know, why don't we write more? I did write, I wrote poetry all through middle and high school. I don't know where any of it is, but like, I'm a writer and I didn't even know it. I never acknowledged it as something I could ever do, even though it was something that came more naturally to me. And so, um, you know, being able to embrace that now and realize that that was me, that was always me. It just feels really good. No, I definitely want to talk about that because I won contests in school and like I was the student, like my teacher had to like submit it without me knowing because I would be like, no, I would like ball it up because I didn't know how to stop editing. I would always create like a new draft mm -hmm. and like even in college, if I had to submit something, I thought it was terrible. Like my first college essay, I got like a hundred on it and I was like, well, this teacher doesn't know what she's doing then. <laughs> But I don't think under people understand 
because I'm like the, I'm the exception to the rule a lot of the time, but I don't necessarily enjoy writing, but it is my preferred mode of communication. And it pains me when people talk about, you know, autism or any disability and they're like, well, don't they want to speak? And I'm like, not everybody does. Even though I have the ability to speak, I prefer texting. I prefer emails. I prefer writing because I don't stumble over words. I have spell check. I, and if I can't process a concept in my mind, I have Google to do that for me. (laughs) And I think you have more time to process your words and and make sure you're, you're saying things the way you want to say it. And I think writing is really beautiful for that. Yes. And like, I have to say I'm kind of conflicted because I know there's like new news reports coming out every day of, oh, schools are going back to pen and paper. And I want to put it on record that I hated pen and paper. I was never diagnosed with dysgraphia, but I have like big hands for a female. And for whatever reason, no matter the pencil size, like the fat pencils, the skinny pencils, even with like little thing, I just didn't like to handwrite. And even though I can, I don't prefer to, like, I will force myself because I'll sign up for post-crossing because I love like sending postcards across the world, but I love to type. And for me, it's such an uh, accommodation, which I didn't realize until I was researching it, but I'm not sure if you knew, but Thomas Edison, his mom got him a typewriter and that was his accommodation because the letters are always there. Numbers are always there. And this was before spell check. But it was an accommodation. I feel like if we went simply back to pen and paper, I feel so bad for neurodivergent kids that would lose access to accommodations. Yeah. Yeah, I can see that. I definitely um, have an attachment to my keyboard and and not to pen and paper in that way, for sure. Well, and I've heard like there's certain authors, like they save their first typewriter or they save, like no matter how old their laptop is, they like save it. And it's like a memento at that point. (laughs) Yeah. And I, you know, I've even heard of, you know, and back before computers, they did all, they had no choice, but they handwrite it. So imagine, you know, hundreds of pages of drafts and. But my mom's, yeah, my mom's older. So we joke, we're like, how was the chisel and the tablet in when you were in school? (laughs) <laughs> oh my goodness that's too funny like, could like, you imagine the working memory you need to remember the alphabet and the chisel and the t- yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh your poor mom right <laughs> <laughs> but thank you so much I really am so excited to see your growth I really want people to listen to your story and I also want to point out that like I feel like if you meet somebody on the street and you say, oh, I have a child that is disabled, they immediately kind of zone out. And I want people to know that inclusivity is for everybody because when you're a parent, like I I do feel like when you said earlier, like, oh, I was the first to have a kid. I, I was like the first in my friend group too. Um, and I always gravitated to the parents that already had kids, but people almost are like, oh, well you chose that life. So you have to deal with it. Yeah, there's some level of victim blaming. And I, I think going back to what you just said about they kind of glaze over it, it's ableism is rooted in in fear and discomfort. And if we can sit in that and say, okay, like let me listen to you now and let me start asking questions, you know, and supporting you the way you tell me you need support, like 
you can overcome that fear and discomfort and ableism, just like, you know, in the years that I did, because we all start somewhere. <laughs> yeah. And like fear, it doesn't have to be scary. Fear is just not knowing at this time. Exactly. And I feel like exactly. what bothers me is I never, when I learned about disabilities in school, I never thought, oh, well, that'll never happen to me. I always thought, because I saw my grandmother develop Alzheimer's and need a wheelchair. And, you know, you know, when you get older, that is inevitable. You know, you might lose an ability you once had, and you do seek out accommodations at that time, but you shouldn't wait until that time to know what to seek. Mm -hmm. So my question to you would be, what would you like our listeners to know if they are maybe a new parent or a, a parent with a newly diagnosed child? What are some kind of words of wisdom you'd like to give them? Yeah. Um, I just would love to give them my own hindsight and my own perspective and to say that remember your child is just a child first. They don't need to meet our standards. They don't need to meet the world's standards. They only need to enjoy life and have fun and be given a really good childhood. And for you, drop those expectations and just watch them and just look at them, watch them grow, watch them smile, watch them be happy, because that is how you are going to make and raise a wonderful family. And that really is the goal. You know, you, you can get your child where, where they need to be at the top of their trajectory. It doesn't need to be compared to anyone else. And so once you can drop that comparison, which is the thief of joy, once you can drop that comparison, those expectations, you can enjoy your child and you can enjoy life and you can have more perspective, more insight than any other family that doesn't raise a child with disabilities. And so you will, you will have an advantage in life if you can do that. And that's my advice. <laughs> oh my goodness. I love, that was a, such a perfect wisdom to end on. And so I wanted to personally thank you, Corey, so much for sharing your insights, your journey, your journey, your advocacy and expiring examples. I want to remind people to follow you on Instagram at Corey Brisky and to check out your website. I'm going to put all the information in the show notes. I'm going to include some additional information that Corey has shared in the show notes as well. But ultimately I want our listeners to embrace neurodiversity as not something scary, that neuroaffirming isn't probably too far from what you grew up with. And just like Corey said, it's reminding yourself that your child is your child is half your DNA walking around and they're human. So remember every human brain is a valuable thread in the tapestry of neurodiversity. And I hope all of our listeners have enjoyed this episode, but please remember every human brain is unique and the strategies that you've heard today might work best for our children or our experiences but what's best for one human may differ from one to another so please be willing to adapt and evolve your approach as you learn more about neurodiversity and the needs and strengths and challenges of all humans please incorporate neurodiversity affirming practices in your life and just remember that it's an ongoing journey of learning empathy and growth don't forget to like 
share, subscribe, and if you have time, please leave a review on your favorite podcast platform. And remember that we put out new episodes bi-weekly on Wednesdays. Until then, this is your host, the Neuroforming Parent, signing off.